So we've been talking through to Peter uh, along the lines of the theme, enduring to the end. Of course, Peter writing this second epistle is uh, dealing with not uh, the, the pressure from without or the trials from without, but the temptations and trials from within as false teachers would sneak into the congregation among the people and teach false things. And we've been seeing as we've talked about this that Peter doesn't want us just to be aware of the reality of false teachers. He wants us to know how to deal with them. He wants us to know how to grow in spite of their presence, in spite of the fact that there are false teachers around us. He wants us to continue to grow. You see, when God saves us, He doesn't just save us and place us in Christ so we can stay put, so we can be static. God saves us so that He might grow us. He wants to take us from glory to glory. He wants to conform us to the image of His Son. This is the good news. The good news is not just that God wants to say your sins are forgiven, but that you're free from the power of sin, and one day, because of Jesus, you're going to be free from the presence of sin. Praise God. This is what He's saving us to. And so the letter of of 2 Peter is about how we can endure to the end because getting from the point that we become Christian to the point that we see Him face to face and we're made just like Him, from point A to point B, there's a lot of pitfalls, there's a lot of turns and twists, there's a lot of trials and difficulties, and we need endurance. We need endurance. Now, God wants us to endure not just sort of waiting in one place, but to be moving forward in endurance. He wants us to keep growing. In fact, He wants us to grow right up into the end. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to give you basically three basic things that we need to keep growing. So in verse 14, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. And of course, he's talking about what he just said in verse 13, which is, Nevertheless, we, according to Jesus' promise, look for what? A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And when he says, when Peter says in verse 14, we're looking forward to these things, he means just that, just like the way we use it in modern English. Man, I really look forward to today's meal. I really look forward to my holiday. I really look forward to spending time with my kids, whatever the case might be. It's that looking forward with a joyful anticipation. We we want these things to take place. And Peter's saying, we look forward to, we're excited about the return of Jesus. As scary as it is that He's going to judge all people, as sobering as that is, we still look forward to it because when He comes back, He's going to establish His reign and it's going to be a place where righteousness dwells, where every good thing happens. I mean, it's even hard for us to imagine, but we need to, guys. We need to remember that what God's taking us to, what He's, he's bringing us to, His goal for us is so good that he is, he is preparing for us a kingdom. He is bringing us into a place where, listen, everyone's going to love God the way God deserves, and everyone's going to love each other the way we're called to. I mean, I can't even get my head around that. I mean, it's hard to imagine a a place or a circumstance where everybody loves each other and sees God as He is. No more confusion, no more debate, no more sin, no more death, no more suffering. Righteousness, the way things ought to be, is how they're going to be when Jesus comes back. And so 
Peter's saying we look forward to these things. And, and this brings up the first thing that we need to understand uh, if we're going to keep growing. That is, listen, we need to have the right application of the gospel. The right application of the gospel. In other words, we don't need to fear future judgment. You know why? Because the gospel. Because the good news is Christ took our judgment upon Himself at the cross. Listen what the Scripture says. John the Apostle writes this in 1 John 4, 17. He says, love, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Even now, we have this position with Him. In fact, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul, when he writes his second letter to Timothy, the last letter he ever wrote to somebody, on his, he's going to be executed after this letter is written. He's written it from prison. Peter, uh, uh, sorry, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Listen, and not only to me, but also to all who notice, who have loved His appearing. See, a lot of us, even as people who profess faith in Jesus, we're sometimes we're fearing His appearing. Oh no, I don't want Him to come back. I'm scared. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. Well, do you believe the gospel? Do you understand that Christ has saved you? That Christ is your righteousness? Because that's what we have to start with. That's what we need to be founded on. That's the first and most important application of the gospel. The good news is, it's not that you can earn a place of righteousness with God, because you can't. That's the bad news that we have to understand first. The good news is, is He's given you righteousness. He's declared you as innocent. That's what justified means. The Bible says we're justified by faith. We'll see that in a minute. And justified means to be rendered innocent. That's how God views you. That's the application of the gospel. It's one thing for us to say, okay, I understand. I, I believe. We sing the song, I believe that He rose from the dead. I believe He's coming back soon. I believe He died from us. sins. okay, yeah. It's one thing to understand that, even to articulate. It's another thing to believe that you're righteous because of that, that He's rendered you innocent. That's the gospel. Now, he goes on to say in verse 14, he says, okay, looking, looking forward to these things, here's the response. Notice, listen, he says, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spots and blameless. You see, the right application of the gospel is not just that we don't fear judgment, but also, listen, we're motivated towards holiness. We're motivated towards holiness. Holiness is kind of a, it's a word that we've kind of twisted into something negative. When we think of holy, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is holier than thou. Oh, he's holier than thou. You think you're so holy, right? But holiness, holy is a beautiful thing. The Bible says that we should worship God in the beauty of His holiness. It, it, holiness has this idea of being wholly separated, wholly distinct, being pure. And of course, God Himself is holy. Now, when, the, when we talk about holiness, we're talking about holiness is defined by our Redeemer Jesus. Look what Peter wrote in 1 Peter. Listen to this. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout this time of your stay here in fear. That is, not fear of judgment, but fear of God. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, listen, like silver and gold, but with, uh, from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with, here's how you were redeemed, listen, but with the precious blood of Christ, notice, as of a lamb without what? Blemish and without spot. Can you see how it's connected to what Peter says in 2 Peter when he says, listen, know that, that you might be found in him without spot or, and blameless? The, the, the idea is, know, you know, be diligent. Put, give every effort to pursue the holiness that you've been given positionally. In fact, that's what we need to understand. That this holiness, it grows from the positional to the practical. You guys know what I mean by that. In other words, when we've put our faith in Jesus, we're declared innocent. We have a position of righteousness, a holy place we've been given, a holy relationship we've been given in God, okay? And we're called to grow from that position of holiness to the practice of holiness, the practice of being set, of, set apart for God, by God. This is why Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. He says, But now, having been, notice past tense, having been set free from sin and having become uh, slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. Do you see how it goes from the positional to the practical? Now, here's some of the mistakes that we can make within Christendom. We can stress the practical. You need to be holy. This is what our Pentecostal holiness brothers did about a century ago. It was they put a big focus on holiness. We should be a distinct people. But they got away from the position. Everything was about proving that you're holy. Be holier. That's where the idea of holier than thou kind of came from. But the other mistake is equally bad. It's that idea of, hey, we're, we're positionally righteous, man. Don't put that trip on me about being diligent. I'm not saved by works. No, but you are saved for works. You are saved to, toward holiness. See, the right application, listen, of the gospel means we are pursuing the thing that God saved us for, pursuing holiness. And so he goes on to say in verse 15, the first part of verse 15, it, Peter says, and consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Do you remember what we read last week or two weeks ago? in uh, verse 9 of chapter 3, where it talks about that God's not willing that any should perish, but all, that all should come to repentance. He's always waiting. That's why he hasn't come back. Now, I believe when Peter's saying this here, it's a reference in one part to the reality that, listen, the Lord is waiting because he's changing us. He's, he's making us more like Jesus. But also, more so, listen, it's about the fact that a right, the right application of the gospel is actually sharing the gospel with other people. You know, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the spiritual warfare that we're involved in, the fact that there's, there, are, there are spiritual uh, entities that, um, that war in the heavenlies in a way that's a kind of a mystery to us, but they do desire for us to be pulled away from Jesus. He talks about putting our armor on, right? The kids sang that song, we got our armor on. Maybe we should start singing that song, I don't know. But they, they put the armor of God on, and one of the parts of the armor of God that he talks about in Ephesians 6 is having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, listen, 
One of the ways that we stand against the wiles of the devil is to be prepared to share Jesus with people. And what Peter's saying here, listen, is the right application of the gospel is to give it away, is to share with people. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if you have no desire to see people saved, you must question whether you're saved yourself. We should desire, if we recognize that this great God who made us and gave us every good and perfect gift also saved us through the gospel, why would we not want to say that? If you had terminal cancer and someone found a cure that you could take a pill and be instantly healed in 15 minutes, would you want to keep that to yourself? No, this is what we're talking about. To grow to the end, we need to rightly apply the gospel. No, we don't have to fear future judgment because we're in Christ. Know that we're motivated towards holiness and know that we should share Jesus while there's still time. So that's the first thing, the right application of the gospel. Here's the second thing, the right attitude towards Scripture. Peter says, listen, I'm not the only one who says this. Paul says the same thing. Look at verse 15. He says, as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now understand that when Paul wrote, or when John wrote, or even when Peter wrote, that they believed that they were writing in the authority of God. That they were writing things, not maybe they didn't realize this every time, but there was an, an essence they recognized, they spoke in the authority of God, they wrote in the authority of God. We see this in their letters. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about in the context of the work of the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, if anyone thinks to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. That's a pretty big deal for him to say, I, when I'm writing, God commands. I mean, seriously, you guys would be nervous if I started saying, thus says the Lord every time I preach. You'd be, whoa, the guy thinks he's talking for God, you know. But these guys had that sort of authority. John, at the end of the book of Revelation, after he receives the revelation from Jesus, he writes this, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away uh, his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Ooh, that's sobering, isn't it? The point, though, is, the point I'm trying to make here is that Paul recognized, Peter recognized, John recognized, as apostles of Jesus, they were sent out with a specific authority that only fit with those 12. They had this, they had this authority. They were writing, they were speaking the authority of God through the wisdom that God gave them. Now, Peter goes on to say, he makes, he makes this really honest statement in verse 16, he says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, we'll talk about what these things are in a second, speaking of them in these things in which are some things hard to understand. Now we're talking about growing to the end, we need to have the right attitude towards Scripture. One is recognizing, of course, that the apostles, uh, God gave the apostles wisdom to write the Scripture, that they were writing the authority of God. That's why we trust it. But also, listen, being honest with the fact that some Scripture is hard to understand. You know, one of the reasons we teach verse by verse, I mean, we, we do do topicals occasionally, but mostly we teach verse by verse. One of the reasons we do that is so that we don't skip over the hard bits. 
Because what ends up happening, you start skipping over the hard bits, you start having very little you can preach. Because <laughs> there's a lot of hard bits. There's a lot of difficult things in Scripture. A lot of things that are hard to understand. Now, difficult does not mean impossible. It just means difficult. This is why the guys that we have teaching, we, we, we want to teach them how to teach, to wrestle with Scripture. I mean, Adam didn't just wake up one day and become a great Bible teacher. He's learning to wrestle with Scripture. He's learning to say, okay, God, what are you actually saying here? How does this work? He's learning to, to look at older, wiser men, not talking about me, I'm talking about commentators, <laughs> and, 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 and know how to wrestle with a text of Scripture and ask the right questions. He, wants, he, he recognizes, man, this is, this is some hard stuff to understand. But he also knows it's the truth, and so he wants to see the truth set us free. So it's difficult, it's, it's, it's important for us to recognize, hey, sometimes it's hard to understand Scripture. In fact, listen, he says, Peter says, here's what the false teachers do, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do to the rest of, the, the, do the rest of Scriptures. Now, as a side note, but a really important one, do you notice he says the rest of Scripture? This is Peter saying basically that Paul, what Paul writes is Scripture. Now, this is really important. Why do we believe the Apostle Paul speaks with authority when he wasn't one of the original 12? One of the reasons we believe that is because Peter said it was the case. Peter said he spoke Scripture. He wrote Scripture, I should say. We believe that what Paul writes is inspired by God because the other apostles who were inspired by God confirm that's the case. Now, this is important, okay? It's important because understanding that... that the Scripture can be difficult to understand. False teachers will often exploit the difficulties. Now, remember, I, I, Peter says, uh, Paul's written of these things. The reference is there. These things is a reference to uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is going to come back. Okay? If there's any area in Scripture that's difficult to understand, it's the area of the coming again of our Lord Jesus. Now, this is something that... I've continued to study pretty in-depth. I've taught verse by verse through the book of Revelation three times, okay? I've taught the book of Daniel verse by verse twice. I've taught the uh, Gospel of Matthew three times, the Gospel of Mark twice. They both have a lot that has to do with end-time stuff, what we call eschatology. And I will tell you this, after studying, I've been a pastor now for 24 years, after studying for 24 years, teaching those books several times, there's still things I go, I'm not sure how that works. So be wary of people who want to say, here's the sign. Here's what's happening. Be careful of some of that. Now, we can know a season, and we can be aware of the fact that our salvation is closer than when we first believed. The Scripture tells us that. But be careful of the stuff, especially that flows around Facebook and stuff that says, here's what's going to happen next, and here's what's happening here. And, and for 37 pounds, you can get the rest of the story. <laughs> Be careful of that stuff. Now, flipping this to a positive in this sense, okay? The right attitude towards Scripture. If, we're, if it's untaught and unstable people who are twisting it to their, to their own destruction, what kind of people should we should be? We should be taught and stable people. In other words, listen, the right attitude towards Scripture, I believe, is, is one where we are both learners and doers of the word. 
We want to know what God says, and we want to live by it. How do we do that? Now, obviously, one of the ways is, is that on, on Sunday mornings or when you go to home group or whenever you're having some sort of a Bible study, take notes. Now, I know some people aren't good note takers. They get distracted if they're writing down words. I, I'm that way. I get distracted from writing down words. But I found if I doodle, it helps me pay attention. So don't feel guilty if you're a doodler. I'm a doodler as well. So you draw a picture of what's going on. That can help. But do whatever it takes to absorb as much information as you possibly can. But here's some practical things that we'll put on the screen about how, um, about how we can get the most out of our, our own Bible reading time. There should be five things that go on the screen. Hello? There they are. Okay. You're reading the Scripture for yourself. We have a Bible reading plan that we suggest you use if you don't have your own. But hopefully you've, you've, you've committed to systematically reading through the Scripture. However you want to do that. However long you think it's going to take you. But as you're reading the Scripture, sometimes we can read the Bible and it's hard to understand. And we think, well, how do I, what, do, what do we do? Well, here's some questions, some basic questions you can ask when you're reading your chapter a day or three chapters a day, whatever it is. Ask yourself, what does this tell me about God? I mean, what do I see about God here? Even if you don't like the answer it gives you. It's good to have a journal and drop some of these things down. Ask yourself, what does this tell me about humanity? You can say, okay, what are the people here doing? What does that tell me about how people are? Make a note. Are those people seeming to be professing faith or not professing faith? Ask yourself, is there a command I need to obey? There's no point reading the command and go, ooh, that's a good command if you're not actually going to try to obey it. Ask yourself, should I be, how, how can I obey this command? There's a, com- a command here that I need to obey. Is there a sin I need to confess? Ever read the scripture and go, ooh, man, I do that. That's bad. Or a sin you need to avoid? Is there a promise I need to believe? It's amazing if we would just take some time to ask ourselves these basic questions, how much more we'd get out of our own Bible reading? How much better learners we would be? But we also need to be, also listen, we need to be doers. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrews writes, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is mature. Notice what he, how he says, here's what maturity is. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How do you grow in your ability to understand Scripture? One way is you do what it says. The Bible talks about in the book of Psalms that a great understanding of those who keep your commandments. James says, don't be a hearer only of the word, deceiving yourself, but be a doer of the word. Understanding of what God says comes from doing what God says. Jesus talked about, if anyone uh, desires to, to know my will, let him do my doctrine, and he'll know my, will, my doctrine comes from God. There's something about when we begin to obey God that we recognize, wow, you know, <laughs> what God says is the best way. And also, wow, I really, do, I, really, I really can't do what God wants me to do on my own. And man, I really do need a Savior. I mean, I, forget about the, the, the details just for a second, the, the detailed commands. Just think about the commands we talked about. Jesus commands us, if we're going to follow Him, we need to love people as He loved us. Think about the severity and the difficulty of that command. Does it not prompt you to say, oh, I need a Savior? 
See, this is what we're talking about. There's something about doing God's word. What's our attitude towards scripture? And I'm saying this to us as Servants Church, guys, because we are people who, who are we're here because, oh, we want to hear the teaching, man. We want to hear the word of God. Do you realize how dangerous it is to want to hear the word of God and not be willing to do it? And I speak, I'm speaking to myself here because I study, I spend several hours a week studying for stuff and I'm challenged big time by this. Now, the right attitude from, of Scripture, towards Scripture, is how we're going to grow to the end. God, I want to know what you say, and I want to do what you say. Give me the grace to do that. Give me the power to do that. Lastly, here's the third thing. So the first thing, just for repeating, the first thing was the right application of the gospel. The second thing was the right attitude towards Scripture. The third thing is the right appreciation of grace. The right appreciation of grace. Now, we're going to see in these last two verses what I mean by grace and how grace works. But let me first define what I mean by grace because I think it's important that we understand what grace is. When we talk about grace, when the Scripture talks about grace, the word literally means attractiveness. That's what the, the Greek word grace, charis, is. It's, it has to do with attractiveness. But theologically, that word is, is loaded. It, 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 it has to do with one, it has to do with, listen, God's unmerited favor or undeserved favor. It's, it's uh, God wanting to, to do good towards us, not because we deserve it, but because He's good. That's grace. It's His unmerited favor. It's something you can't earn and you don't deserve. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. None of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. That's grace, Okay? It's really important that we understand that. That's why the Bible talks about when it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of works. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. But also, listen, grace isn't just unmerited favor. It's also divine enabling. It's God making you able to do what you can't do on your own. This is why when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit in the book of 1 Corinthians, that sometimes it's, it's, it's translated charismata, the graces, the grace expressions. God giving you the ability to do what you can't do. Now, listen, this has to do with just even service, though he calls us a service in general. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all, talking about the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. See, this is why we should be humble when we see somebody who professes Christ and they're really struggling. We shouldn't go, man, they really need to get their act together. We shouldn't recognize except for the grace of God, so go I. But also, when we're doing well, we should rejoice and say, God, thank you for your grace. Because it's only by your grace that I'm doing well. You enable me for this. Now, here's the great thing. You can always ask for more grace. <laughs> God, I, I just feel like I don't have the grace I need to do this next thing. I need, I'm begging you for grace. I don't have what I need. You think God's going to answer that prayer? How gracious is our God? So when we're talking about the right appreciation of, uh, appreciation of grace, that's what I mean by grace. Unmerited favor and divine enabling, it's both those things. Notice verse 17. You therefore, he says, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being, away, uh, being led away with the error of the wicked. 
Now, what he's talking about here is us, he, look, he said, look, you've been forewarned. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so Peter's talking about here a grace that guards against error. Having grace to be able to guard against error. That means us praying, God, give me the grace not to be deceived, not to get pulled into stuff that's bogus. Not to get stuck in the, the error of the wicked, either in my lifestyle or in my understanding. God, I need grace for that. This is one of the things that Timothy, or I'm sorry, that Paul's alluding to when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong, notice, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, uh, who engages in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Do you see this connection uh, between Paul saying, look, your strength comes from grace, the grace you get from Jesus, and then this metaphor of being a soldier? A soldier is in a life and death situation. A soldier is obeying orders from a higher command. A soldier is working for something that's bigger than himself. That's why he's willing to lay down his life. A soldier isn't looking to please himself, but to please the one who enlisted him. How does he do that? By grace. If we're going to be soldiers of Jesus Christ, and I don't mean, let me be clear, picking up guns and shooting people, <laughs> just, just in case people think that. I am American after all. What I mean is, what I mean is, listen, I mean being those who are, who are wanting to get on their knees and fight, praying for the souls of people, those who are willing to get into the trenches and dig, providing protection for people, those who are willing to get on their knees and wash the feet of God's people, soldiering for Him, laying down our lives for others. We need to appreciate God's going to guard us by grace. Lastly, look at, he says, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The right appreciation of grace means that we recognize that God gives us grace so we can grow through relationship. Remember we talked about that holiness is about going from the positional to the practical? It's the relationship that bridges those gaps. And God gives us the grace for that relationship. Look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That doesn't mean we feel peace, though that comes after we have peace with God. It means that we were once enemies, but now we're not. We've been reconciled. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You get that? You've been justified, rendered innocent by faith because of God's grace. You have peace with God. And guess what? You stand in that grace. Your relationship is, is, is based on that grace, and you have continual access by faith to this God. We grow in grace through relationship. God gives us grace to grow through relationship. This is why I love Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us, let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace 
where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That divine enabling we need. You guys ever sing the song, Oh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. That's why I'm not a worship leader. That's a great little song, isn't it? And he talks about, oh, oh, what peace we often forfeit because we don't bring all things to God in prayer. Oh, what strength we don't have because we don't bring things to God in prayer. We forget we treat God's throne as a throne of fire. And he's a holy God. He's a consuming fire. But in Christ, what is his throne to us now? A throne of grace. A throne of grace. Do you appreciate that? Do you appreciate that you have unhindered access to the creator of the universe because of the grace that's found in Jesus Christ? Unhindered access. You say, but what if I sin? What if I sin? Guess where you can go? Right to the throne of grace and confess and repent and obtain mercy and find grace to help to walk away. If you're going to make it to the end, man, you've got to appreciate grace. You've got to learn to appreciate grace. We have to learn to have the right appreciation of grace. It's this unmerited favor, this divine enabling. It guards us against error, and we grow in it through relationship. Let's not forget that when we talk about enduring to the end, we're talking about an end that's good. We're talking about an earth, a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is what we're enduring towards. And we talk about endurance. Remember, God's not saying, hey, I'm, I'm up here. Hope you can hang on until you get here, buddy. God walks with us. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, but I will send my Holy Spirit. God's walking with you to bring you to himself. He's going to bring you through this time. Hey, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It is. We see, we see that hinted at in 2 Peter, spoken clearly about in the Gospels. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But here's the good news. It's going to get better. It's going to be perfect one day. And for those of us that know Jesus, that's our end. That's what we're looking forward to. And it's going to be perfect because Him, because He's perfect, because He's good. I wonder how many of you here who would profess faith in Jesus are struggling with endurance. I wonder how many of you here are thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. What does his word say? You can trust him. You can trust him. Have that right attitude towards his word. Have that right appreciation for his grace. You can trust him.